All right, all right. Now, usually, Ahmad, I'm the one that uh, introduces the guests. But I think today, for obvious reasons, I think uh, I, I, I'll give you the, the lob on this one. Would you Would you mind doing us the honors, good brother? <laughs> Do you mind doing us the honors? Yes, yes. Uh, we got a legend on, Larry Hughes from St. Louis, Missouri. How you doing, Larry? I'm doing good, man. I like that hat. Of course, of course. It, it, it feels good to have somebody from St. Louis other than myself on the podcast. So I will say that. You know, it's, 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 it's funny, Mike, because obviously, you know, you were in a hat. That was the first thing I already knew, you know, why you wore stuff. Much, much respect, though. Much, much respect. You know, city ties. I'm not mad at it. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get right into it. Um, Larry, I want to know, like, the first question I have for you, what was your welcome to the NBA moment? It could be good or bad. Oh, man, my welcome to the NBA moment was was strictly on the business side, right? When, when I was drafted, um, you know, eighth to Philadelphia, you know, all excited. I'm signed with and one, you know, we're in a lockout. So, you know, there's no action. So you can't use the, the practice facility. You can't meet all of the staff. So that was like my first like introduction to like the NBA is like, well, the business comes first and then, you know, the basketball and the performance comes after that. So that was my very first experience, uh, with, you know, within the NBA. Would you say that was like a, a, a would you say like that was like a, a tough reality? Like how was that transition? Right. You mentioned it being a business, you know, you're more than just an athlete, but like what was that actual difference like for you? Well, I, I think it happened quick for me, you know, right? From from high school, you know, obviously I was there for four years, but then I went to college and I was only there for a few months. And then once you get drafted, you're pretty much like, all right, you're in a grown man's business. Like this is, you know, this is the big world. So then you got to figure it out. So if the practice facility is not open, you got to find out places to work out. You still got to stay in shape, right? You still have to do things that, you know, that are preparing you for the, for the NBA season without, you know, all of the advantages of, of, of using the facility. So for me, it was like, okay, how do I navigate, you know, being fresh out of school, nobody to really call home to, to say, Hey, I need this. I need that. It's just really like being, you know, being a man on my own, you know, knowing that, we don't have a season just yet, but you still have to be prepared. So that was that was definitely a learning experience. How do you feel like that affected your rookie season in the NBA? Uh, it was thrown together. Like, it was really quick. We, we played 50 games. Um, obviously, you know, coming one year out of college, you know, there was a lot of development that I need still needed to do, you know, on the court and off the court, you know, um, you know continue to work on my game. So it, it hurt a little bit, but at the same time, everyone went through it. And I think we came out better, you know, from going through that experience. And, and you mentioned, you know, obviously the college and the transition. What are your thoughts on like the preps to pro kind of business, right? Do you, do you feel like high schoolers should have the opportunity now, you know, to go straight to the league from high school? Or do you think they should have one year of, of college experience underneath their belt? Well, I think any situation you have to manage what the expectations are. There's very few, you know, guys that will come out of prep or high school that are completely ready to um, be an impact on an NBA team. There's, there's very few of those guys. So you have to understand what the expectation is, right? If you're a young guy, you know, going to bypass all of those other amateur status, are you really ready? Because, you know, once you jump into that, you know, jump into that field, you know, like I said, there's grown men trying to feed their family. So you have to be aware of, you may not get that, quick opportunity that you thought, right? I mean, there's the G League now. There's these other situations now. There's two-way deals now, things of that nature. So um, there's a lot to understand. But again, I think just, just managing your expectations. And if you feel like you can go for it, like 
I'll never tell a kid like, you know, don't think that you can reach your dreams. What do you feel like is the biggest difference with young players growing up? I know you have a camp out in St. Louis, uh, elite basketball camp. What do you feel like is the difference with these guys coming up with all the NIL deals and the social media and stuff compared to like when you played when you were coming up, going from high school and then eventually to college and then into the pros? Well, I think, you know, when I was coming up, you had to see everything in real life. Like there's no social media, there's no virtual action, there's no way to dial in to see what, you know, these guys are doing, you know, in New York or California, like you actually had to be in a gym. So when I was coming up, I just wanted to make sure that I was in every gym that, you know, the top player was supposed to be in or, you know, where it was too thick for me to be. That's where I wanted to be at. So for these guys that are coming up, I mean, the world is smaller for them. Um, they have access to a lot more skill development. So that pushes the game forward as well. So I think it's just a difference. And I, I'm a guy that, that loves, you know, evolution and, and wants to see the game evolve. So I think that that's just what, you know, what these young guys are doing is they're just taking a game to the next level. And how would you describe, uh, like, what does it mean to be NBA ready? Uh, NBA ready is, is um, you know, mind, body, and soul, really. It's not just about the physical piece. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that make it to the league can run, jump, you know, run fast, but it is about the mental approach and how you feed your, you know, feed your mind and feed your body about the task that's at hand, right? Every day is not going to be a great day. Every game won't be a great game. So I think it's, it's a, has a lot to do with the mentality of, of, the, of the person, you know, fighting through adversity. Um, you know, the physical part is the physical part. You can't compete if you don't have the physical tools, but the advantage and, and I think for the people that have it is using their mental to push through, you know, and reach different levels. Now, Larry, you played in the, you talked about evolution and you played into me probably the hardest era to score, the 2000s era. What do you think is the biggest difference between that era you played in and the game today? I just think it's just everybody's in the paint. Like, you know, if you watch the highlights or just watch games, I mean, if, if you're on the wing getting ready to drive the basketball, there's, there's probably seven people in the paint, including your teammates. In today's game, the lane is wide open. So, you know, I was a guy that had a really good first step. But when I used my first step, it's like three other guys, you know, at the rim. So that's where we created a lot of the mid-range jump shots. But and now in today's game, I mean, the paint is so wide open. Uh, guys are so skilled. I mean, I'm looking at today's game. If I can use my first step, you know, there's nobody at the rim in, in most situations. And, and even that, too, you mentioned the whole mid-range and, and that, you know, still being a part of the game. Do you feel that it should that should continue to be the case? Like, because nowadays people either talk about threes, layups, or free throws. But how do you, yeah, but how do you feel about the mid-range game actually being an art? Well, I, I think you have to understand the analytics and you have to understand the number of possessions that the teams are generating these days. And that creates shooting the three-pointer because if you have more possessions and you shoot a decent percentage from the three, then obviously you score more points. But I think just from a basketball player standpoint and just being skilled enough to hit a 15 footer, I mean, it's a free throw. So, you know, I'm teaching my, my son and teaching everybody that I work with. If you can get to that 15 foot range, I mean, that should be, you know, in live game action, you know, a 50% shot, you know, if you create enough space. So I think that the mid range is, is still in effect. It's still in play. Um, you know, the guys that can shoot the basketball well and not just shooting threes and not shooting layups are those guys that continue to shoot the mid-range jump shot, and you see it in today's game. 
Are you a fan of analytics? Because most older players that played in different eras in the past aren't really like fans of the analytics. They feel like the analytics kind of ruin the game with all the threes and the layups. How do you feel personally about analytics being so heavily involved in the game today? Well, I think it's a, a, a huge part of it. I think you have to add in, you know, all of the facets of the game, you know, all of the little nuances of the game, and you have to bring in as much data as possible. Uh, when you talk about analytics, we use analytics in, in, with the academy to understand, you know, the best spot on the floor for our young people, whether it's the right side or the left side, um, if they're short all the time. So these things can help us develop the young players, um, you know, as they continue to, to, you know, grow up in this analytical world of, you know, everything that you do is, is tracked. All your performance is tracked, you know. So the analytics, I think, is, is, a, is a good part of the game. But at the same time, I think you still have to play the game, you know, and allow the data and allow the information to speak to you and to help you enhance yourself. But don't just solely use, um, you know, that data. You have to match it up with with real time information. Yeah. How, how would you uh, weight the two, if you would? Right. So analytics and the eye test, would you say it's 50 50? Would you say it's 70 30 if you had to? And if there's another one that you would put into, I guess, that conversation, if you would. Right. What, 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 how would you kind of assign each of them a weight? Well, I think it depends on the person. I think it depends on the person, the evaluator, uh, the coach, uh, someone like myself who's been in the game for 30 years almost now. Um, initially, I don't need much of the analytics, analytics to, to come into play. Right. I can use my eye test to understand if, if this person can execute, if they can play, uh, if they can shoot. And then the data will tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. But I've been around the game for so long, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm great with the eyeball test. But for the young people today, you have to bring in those analytics. You have to bring in that data to prove them what you're saying is correct. So that's how we use that data. If I tell you, you may not completely agree with me or understand. But then if I show you that data, then that's a way to reinforce the information that I'm giving you. Now, Larry, you, you, you mentioned you've been around the game for a long time. Um, you had a unique opportunity to play with Michael Jordan this last season, also LeBron James. I want to know, like, what are, what's the difference between playing with those two players? Oh, uh, well, both of those guys are great. Uh, both of those guys are great. Uh, basically ran their era of basketball. Uh, for me, you know, obviously the question's probably coming, but I get the question all the time is MJ is my, um, my greatest of all times, you know, so to speak. Um, guy I grew up watching and, and, you know, not so much of, of one to be like, but just just having an understanding of how great uh, he actually was. But then when you couple the, the fact of playing with Brian when he's, you know, 18, 19 years old and obviously where he's gone you know, today, you can see the greatness. You can see the attention to detail. Uh, you can see the will to win. Um, they just did it in different ways. The communication factor, how Brian communicates with his teammates is, is different than how MJ communicates with his team teammates. But again, Bron has, I think, four titles. MJ has six. Um, you know, and the teammates that that I know who've played with Bron only have, you know, good things to say about, you know, the type of person that he is, the type of player that he is, uh, him wanting the best for his teammates. And that's the same with MJ. You know, I mean, with MJ when he was 40, you know, we were playing cards on the plane. We were, you know, going out to dinner. Um, you know, just, you know, just picking his brain about how he communicates with the media, you know, so all of these things are like, they go into my story as well. And I can start to share these things with, with people. But if, if I had to pick a difference on what's, you know, or, or the same, 
those guys are, are, are really similar, uh, but they just go about their business, you know, in a little different way. How important would you say longevity is when it comes to playing in the league, right? Because we talk so often about talent, of course, but I think staying in the league and, and, and you know, mention you know, all the guys that we have is something that should be giving its proper credit. So how important do you think that is in, in terms of these types of conversations? I think it's huge. I think it's huge because, again, you have the, the different media platforms. You have just the, the number of, of, you know, all of this, the communication that goes on in, into the space of, of basketball, right? I mean, you get a rookie that comes in and he's firing it up. He's killing, you know, his first season, his second season, he's killing his third season, he's killing. But that's, that, that doesn't make him a great player, right? It, it, it's doing those things over an extended period of time that makes you uh, great, that brings greatness to the table, that brings other opportunities for other players to come in and play alongside of you that now you bring, you know, what, you know, your winning attitude to what they're doing. So that's when I think about longevity. I think about um, just how quickly now we award, you know, the greatness um, without giving that time span to see how it really pans out. I agree with you on, on that, Larry, for sure. Um, only thing about that is, though, would you say, like, it's easier for players today with the advanced technology to kind of play longer compared to back in the past? Like, we have so much, like, you know, different ways, to, like nutrition and, and certain diets that you guys may not have had in the past. So it may be easier for players today to kind of play 20 plus years compared to like Michael Jordan back in the day, stopping when he was 35, 36 years old. Yeah. I think the value of the player is higher as well. Uh, the salaries go up. So in turn, that makes these organizations want to take better play, better care of, of their players. And speaking from a guy that was, was injured, um, you know, I definitely know that I could have benefited from a number of these things that go on today, whether it be recovery or whether it be uh, these different uh, preventative uh, measures that they're taking uh, within the league now of really being detailed. I mean, these guys are, you know, they're, they're making two, three hundred million dollars, man. So you got to make sure that that thing is, is, is a well oil machine. And like us, we didn't always have that. Right. We, we wanted to hoop. We wanted to play whether something was broken, whether something was sprained or something was partially torn. When we were playing, you just you you play through that. You there wasn't there wasn't a case that. Um, you know, it, it wasn't as detailed as it is now. So, yes, I think that does play into, you know, how long these guys can play now because they're able to catch things in the forefront. They're able to handle things as soon as they see them. They're able to load manage. Um, the schedule is different now. I mean, no, you know, four or five nights was a, was a normal thing. Back-to-back -back games was a normal thing. So it is definitely different. Do you think the league should kind of return to those ways, right, when players playing through injuries and, and the idea of load management was, would, would never really happen like that? Or do you think it's better now that players are taking even more care uh, of their body and really treating, you know, this stuff like, okay, I may have to miss a couple of games in order to look at the, and zoom out and look at the bigger picture? I think it's better. I think it's better. It's all about the business of basketball at this point. And you want your, your key guys, you want your guys to be ready when it matters the most. So you may have to tinker with the schedule as far as to, you know, how many minutes they play or if they play this game or don't play that game, because the most important thing is, is the product and the players are the product. So I don't have any, you know, any issue with, you know, how the load management goes, because I understand that it's a huge business. Um, and if you have your stars, you know, on the court at the right time, doing the right moments, that's a huge boost for an organization, you know, whether it be from 
in the, you know, in the arena sales or, you know, TV sales. I mean, all of that stuff goes into, you know, why, um, I think why players are carried the way that they're carried now. Now, Larry, I had to ask you a question um, about another St. Louis legend in my eyes and an underrated player in the NBA. Like Bradley Bill just signed a five-year, $254 million max contract. What are some things you believe that the Washington Wizards need to do to kind of build a legitimate like playoff contender around them? I think they need longer wings. Um, you know, and I, you know, like Tommy Shepard, we text, you know, every couple months just saying what's up. He was there when I was with the Wizards, a really good guy. Um, but in my opinion, I think that they have to surround Brad with, with bigger guys and not guys that are his same size. Uh, because when you surround guys that are his same size, he can do pretty much everything that they do. And there's not a benefit to the team, right? If you have a big wing that is good on, you know, on ball defender who can rotate and things of that nature. I think that those are the things that, that help Brad, uh, uh Kuzma is going to help Brad. Um, they just got the, the, the draft pick, uh, Johnny Davis. We'll see if he helps Brad. Corey Kispert, is he a guy that's going to help Brad? I mean, they're the same size. You know, Rui Hachimura, is he a guy that's going to help Brad? I mean, he has size, but is he a guy that's going to, um, you know, you know, push Brad and help, put, help get Brad to the next level? I'm not sure. So I think if you have to go and look at that roster and, and kind of um, break down kind of the, um, the height and the size of the players and start to get – guys in there that can do different things than Brad. And talk to us too how the roster of a team could impact how a certain player is viewed, right? Whether in terms of winning by the media, whether that they should be an all-star, so on and so forth. Because we've seen a lot of superstars, right, be on quote-unquote struggling teams and naturally they'll get negative feedback. But in reality, nobody can win if you're not surrounded by a great, either some sort of of talent to compete at a high level. So how is that dynamic between a player actually being great versus, okay, it's still on the GM or the team or whoever, the front office, to really surround these players with other top talent? I think it's perspective. You know, I really think it's perspective if you look at situations where you have these guys that are really good, you know, and then they're now, you know, on the top of the list in the scoring race. So they'll get accolades because they're in the top of the list for the scoring race. And they may get a little flack because their team is not winning. So I think it's just a, it's, it's just really about, you know, perspective and, and how you look at it. Your teammates are very important, right? I mean, none of these guys are doing it, you know, by themselves. So how you surround, you know, how the organization surrounds players uh, is, is very important. And if you think about like the Washington situation, you know, I think Brad gets his flowers. I mean, obviously, you know, we want to see Brad win. He was an all-star. Um, you know, the team hasn't, you know, really made any real noise, but he just got 300. So it's like somebody is valuing, you know, what he's bringing to the table. Um, you know, and I think that that's what, that's why I say it's just perspective. I agree, but also I kind of disagree because when you look at that, yeah, Brad just got like, you know, $251 million, but at the same time, you know, he, of course, he's a star player, but like you can't really look at Bradley Bill and be like, well, your team is losing and Bradley's going out dropping 50 every night. You know, if your front office is not really building a, a, no. a complete team around him. Yeah, but you have to be mindful of, of, of what, you know, the entire situation, because if you have one guy that's performing at a real high level of, of, of scoring 50, how is he supporting those other teammates? Is he trying to win the game by scoring all the points? Or is he trying to win the game by, you know, 
bringing the others with them. So I think that that's that's a balance in itself is that if a, if a good player is producing and the other guys aren't producing at a level or a level that you feel is going to promote winning, what is that star player doing? Because it's not just based on how many points he scores. Is he playing any defense? Is he moving the ball? Is he sacrificing a play for himself for the other guy? So I think that when we watch these certain players, if you have to, I look at the totality of what, you know, how the game is played. Yeah, he shot the ball there. Could he have taken two dribbles and moved it to a guy that hasn't gotten any, you know, attempts and now he's rolling or now he's involved in the game? But do you feel like there's some situations, and this is, you know, even bigger than Brad here, but do you feel like there's some situations where players feel like they have to go out and score 50? It's not even just like a target. It's more of like, okay, if I don't try and reach a certain number, we may not even come close to winning. So do you feel like sometimes there's pressure on them to literally have to do that? I don't think there should be. I don't think there should be because I was always taught if you, if you take enough shots, you'll score enough points. So if, if, the, if the idea is to win the game, then again, you have to strategize on how to win the game. Or, you know, from a broad perspective, are you going to eliminate or are you going to um, uh, try to eliminate some of your possessions so you don't allow them to get the basketball back? You know, so what is the strategy that's going to go inside of that game so we're not asking that guy to score 40? Scoring 40 in the NBA is not easy, and it's going to take a toll on that player, and it's going to take a toll on his teammates as well. So I think that there's just a balance on how to get your job done while also having, you know, that, you know, that star on your back as to, you know, what when, you're expecting. But when this, like, accountability comes from, like, the front office or not placing the right guys around this particular player, I look at Devin Booker, for instance, for years – if you watch basketball and you know the game, like everybody knew how cold Devin Booker was, but people are talking about, is he, you know, guys in the media, of course, like, you know, these figureheads, like, is he really good at basketball? Like he's putting up empty stats, even with Bradley Bill to a certain degree. But when you're averaging 25, five and five, you know, for three, four years, it's kind of like, you're kind of doing everything you can to like help that team succeed. So when does it come, goes from like the player to like the ownership to the front office of like, yo, you guys are letting Brad, you're letting Devin Booker take all this responsibility. But at the end of the day, it's just like you haven't really prepared or placed the right talent around them. My opinion, it should always go into the front office. Uh, players are going to do what they're going to do. Players are going to score. Players are going to play hard. Um, you know, but it, it's up to the front office to make sure that you're surrounded these these guys with 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 great talent. And it's not a lot of times. It's not always about the name. Like we get we get um, enamored about you know this guy's a free agent because he has this name. Well, there's a lot of players, man, that are playing this game now that can really play the game of basketball that they don't have the quote-unquote name. So if, if you're the GM and you're looking at a Devin Booker, you have to find out what players are going to, again, like I said, about what players are going to make Devin better, right? All of these point guards that they've drafted and brought in, those players didn't make Devin better because he just took the ball away from them, and then it was still his show. So you bring in a Chris Paul where now you have someone that's going to compliment Devin in a way that is not about he's going to score, you know, 30, but he's now going to going to, you know, take that pressure off of Devin as far as handling the ball, facilitating and allow Devin to do exactly what he does best. So I think it's always on, you know, the general manager, you know, in, in the front office, that's their job. The player's job is to go out there and play like, you know, 
we don't expect all these players to come in and, and shoot 35 footers. But at the same time, you expect the GM to come in and put a team together, you know, that can win basketball games. And how I would say uh, convenient is that, right? To, to compare, for, right? If we're talking between Devin and Brad and Devin's situation to have uh, a great point guard to be able to set up a score like Devin, right? The idea of like, okay, there's, if you're a player that can get buckets on your own, that's cool. But it's definitely extremely convenient to have a true facilitator like CP3. No, it's important. I mean, it's important. If, if I'm the star player on that team, don't bring in guys that look like me. I mean, we're going to basically do the same thing and it's not going to be up to my advantage because when things get tough, when things get hard, even if I'm tired or not, I'm going to take on that responsibility because I can do exactly what that guy can do next to me. So in, in this, in this, for those guys, I think that I want to have somebody next to me that is not doing exactly what I'm doing. Even even with Brad, like we saw when he had Russell Westbrook next to his side, his side, like they went to the playoffs. So and sometimes it's just as simple as like getting a guy that can like take some of the responsibility off of that star player. That's a great example because once they figured it out, yeah. Russ was the downhill guy. Brad was a spacer guy. So Brad didn't have to get the ball off the rebound and take it down to, to try to facilitate to make a play. Russ was already doing that. So that that's a great example. And I, and I want to mention um, another player here too, uh, Jason Tatum. Um, <laughs> so what, what do you think his future overall looks like um, in the NBA? Obviously fresh off, you know, being, um, you know, heading to the NBA finals, but what do you think his fu overall future looks like in the league? Uh, he's an MB MVP caliber player. Uh, he's very early in, in his stages of development. He's gotten an opportunity early uh, in, in his career to see high level playoff, which is, which is a huge advantage to him. Um, I see him being a, a first and second team um, All-NBA player for the rest of his career. Um, and I also see him being, you know, hanging around on those all-defensive teams. Uh, so I think his ceiling is, is very high. He's just scratching um, of, of what he's able to do. He's, he's with a good organization that understands the attitude of winning and what it takes. So I think that that's very important as well. Uh, so, I mean, it's the, the, the sky is, is the limit for, for, for Jay because of all the things that have, are kind of working, you know, working in his favor or have worked in his favor uh, to continue to move forward. Yeah, I think he's the best young player in the league right now, uh, 25 and under. But a question I have to ask for you is, Larry, what are some things you feel like Jason Tatum needs to work on, like for his development? Like I watch Jason Tatum a lot, but sometimes I felt like some of the shots he was taking were kind of too difficult. Like, I want to know your opinion. Like, what are some things that he needs to do going forward for his development to like, you know, maybe not always take difficult shots and like maybe come off screens or, or curls or pin downs and stuff like that? I think mixing it up. Like you said, I mean, we understand, like Jay's a big kid. Like, like he's not small. So when he, you know, when you talk about coming off the screens and, and getting your looks in different ways and, and more movement, just being mindful that he's not a, you know, he's not a six, seven, yeah. you know, 200 pound, you know, wing player. You know, he's, he's probably about 6'10 right now. And I, yes, you can't take as many tough shots as he had to take, but that's about, you know, understanding again, your team, um, roles and responsibilities. Don't take a bad shot just because you haven't had a shot in three, you know, three times down the court. I think that that is an understanding that, that he's getting. And we've, we spoke about this. I, I want to see him, uh, get into the lane and get into the paint and play off of two feet more. Um, with that, I think it'll allow him to pivot. I think it'll allow him to use his size 
uh, because we did take a lot of tough shots, you know, getting to the basket. Uh, we were leaning in. We were trying to draw fouls. Um, so I think he'll learn from that. But the one thing that I would, would encourage him to do is once he gets to the paint, you know, drop down and get off two feet. That way, you know, you're stronger, you're tall, uh, and I think we'll get a better finish. I think some of that, too, goes into the fact that the lack of true point guard that the Celtics have been dealing with for a while, right? Because, again, we mentioned how Chris Paul has kind of helped elevate Devin Booker's game, even though it was already there. But I think that's something that the Celtics have been dealing with for a while. Like, they've had some good point guards before in the past, don't get me wrong, but like a true facilitator that can put the ball in the right spot for Jason and Jalen at, at that point as well. So, but I, I definitely agree. I mean, anytime you come, what, two wins away from um, when the NBA Finals, obviously you're still on the right path, especially at that age, you know? So, um, I mean, you lost to Stephen Curry. It's not like, you know, yeah. um, you know, that, that's, sure. you know, a lot of people have. So things happen. <laughs> do you think? But, but I, I do, I, I, uh, go ahead, Amon. No, no, go ahead, this. You got it. Now I was going to say too, like, do you think that core, right, that, that uh, in Boston, right, with Jason and Jalen together, right, do you think that's something that should stay intact for the next decade, if you will? Because I think it, it's so rare for two wings, not just two talented players, but for two wings to uh, be able to come together and be that talented at that age and still be on the verge of winning an entire right, NBA final. So do you think that's something that Celtics fans and the entire organization should continue to look to keep together and build around those two? Oh, I definitely do. I definitely do. I think those guys are st they're still growing. They're still learning uh, and understanding, you know, how their games can mesh together, understand how their their game can help their team win. Um, and you don't want to have to get into the league and start to search around in different teams to try to find that guy. Either Jason, he doesn't want to try to find another guy like like Jalen and Jalen can't search around and try to find another guy to play with like Jason. So while you have it, you know, in your fold, I think that you have to maximize, um, you know, that opportunity. You think of, you know, Paul, George, and Kawhi. I mean, you got these young guys that are really ready, you know, really focused, can play on both sides of the ball. You got to figure out how to make it work. And I think, um, you know, bringing in the new coach, you know, and, and that staff, I think that they had a great message. I think they held everyone accountable. Um, and I think they bought in. So I think the best is yet to come for those guys as they continue to figure out, you know, how they play with each other. And then you add in a point guard like Brogdon, who yeah. is known to be a facilitator, known to, um, you know, understand spots on the floor, known to, you know, really be out there for his guys. I think that that can be an advantage that can take those guys to another level. Um, Larry, uh, who, last question I have for you. Who do you say are your top five most underrated players in the league that more people need to pay attention to? Wow. Uh, I, I don't know if, if, they're, if they're underrated. I, I just like the, the guys that, that I like to pay, pay attention to. Um, and I, I wouldn't say these guys are, are necessarily underrated. Uh, but but uh, Damian Lillard, you know, out in Portland, uh, just because of the, the way he plays the basketball uh, game, his mentality, uh, he's not obviously he's not, you know, an underrated player, but um, he's one of my favorites to, you know, to watch and to understand, you know, kind of his, his, his game and, and his movements. And the other guy is, is, is on the East Coast would be um, LaMelo. And I, I think just for me, just his upbringing and, you know, just the, the you know, the, the child prodigy stuff and obviously having a brother, you know, two brothers that, that played, uh, but the, the amount of pressure that his pops put on him. 
I think that I mean he's not underrated, but he actually stepped up, and I watch him whenever I whenever I get a chance to, you know, to watch him. And then Tyrese Maxey with Philly again; these guys aren't necessarily underrated, but they're just kind of um, scratching the surface of what they're doing. But Tyrese Maxey is is another guy. Um, I mean, I always go to go to Cleveland, and um, you know, with Darius Garland, who. Um, Again, not an underrated guy, but it's, it's coming to his 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 yeah. groove, right? He's coming to like he he came in when Colin Sexton was there, and Colin Sexton was the dog, and then Colin got hurt, and then it's like, oh, who is this guy? And he just stepped up, you know, and, and really and really did yeah. his thing. And the other guy I got is um Aaron Gordon. Aaron Gordon, out in out in Denver. I didn't I, I think if once those guys get healthy. I think that he's going to be a very important piece for what they're doing going forward. I, I mean, I just think that I think with his size and, and going into, a, you know, a winning culture, I think that he'll he'll make that team do something next season. I, I didn't. Wow. Eric Gordon, I was not expecting, but two way player, big six, nine can guard multiple positions. I, I feel it. Um, just think if they got Murray back, just yeah. think when they got Michael Porter back, like he yeah. can be one of them guys that could really. You know what I'm saying? Rebound, run the court, you know, play D, switch. Yeah. He can help I think, those I, th- guys. I think the Denver Nuggets are a team that people should be thinking about, like, if everybody's healthy, like you said, like, can make a a, a run to the NBA Finals because they got the two-time MVP as well. So be, it's going to be interesting for sure. Um, but, Larry, we want to thank you. I don't know what happened to Theus. I think we lost Theus. But um, <laughs> thank you for coming on. Any last words you want to say to the No Pump Fakes crowd? No, nah, man. I, First, yeah, just appreciate, you know, what y'all doing. I appreciate y'all letting me come and jump on your platform. I know we got some connections. Obviously, uh, you know, the, the St. Louis connection, so it's all good. It's all good to see you guys, man, with that, repping that St. Louis out here doing, you know, great things in the space, you know, using your voice, using your basketball knowledge, man. So just continue to do what you're doing. Um, and appreciate you.